1: Are you
2: ready to begin?
1: Yes, I'm all set here. Yeah. Any programme about science or scientists today is almost bound to focus on space.
3: Houston, the has landed. Mister Station,
4: we are ready for the event. Thank you.
3: Hello, it's Richard here with another Space Boffins and uh, can we just go round the room to check we're ready? BC, go.
1: Kenny. Go. BC. Go. ATC-1. Go. TTA. ATC go. one Go. TCA, go. Field one, go. Field two. Go. M1. Go. atc 3
3: Go. That's the checklist from last week's launch of the first Orion spacecraft. Sue Nelson was there reporting for Space boffins and more from her in a moment. I'll also be talking to the head of the UK Space Agency after Europe's science ministers agreed funding for the International Space Station, a new rocket and a mission to Mars. Plus, we meet the maker of the space station's new coffee machine. With me, author and science journalist Stuart Clark, and science broadcaster and TV presenter
4: Sarah Crudus. Sarah, excited about Orion? Was it exciting? That launch was absolutely incredible. And I think the fact we had the whole of the day before it didn't quite manage to go and then it went bang on time at the start of the window on Friday. Just incredible. And I hope it will maybe inspire a new generation in the same way that Apollo did.
3: And Stuart, it is that anticipation really helps, doesn't it, with space? That things don't quite go to plan and you're just sitting there on the edge of your seat?
5: Yes, it's, it is It is like some kind of high-tech reality TV show, you know, that you, you, you literally are on the edge of your seat. And with social media, you can interact with everybody else through Twitter and things like that, so you can feel the excitement that's, that, that's coming along with these launches. Well, Sue travelled to Cape Canaveral to take part in a NASA
3: social, which is a gathering organised by the agency for a selected group of space fans. They were given better access than the world's media to the emotional roller coaster of the first Orion launch. We join Sue on day one. <laughs>
2: Well, about 15 minutes to go to the launch. I'm standing on the edge of a swamp. According to one of the social media people here today, there was an unexpected visitor on a recent launch. They had an alligator come out of the water in front of where everyone was watching.
4: What happened?
2: And I think everyone kept watching the thing. He left us alone. So the launch was more important. Yes, than being Alligator on the Alligator
4: just wanted to watch. Better view. My name is
2: Megan Grothman. Here for the NASA social event. And where are you from, Megan? From St. Louis, Missouri.
0: I'm Mac Bradley. I'm also from St. Louis, Missouri. But I didn't know her before yesterday, <laughs> and uh, I'm here to see something really amazing.
2: Oh, but aren't you a little bit of a bad luck charm?
0: In general terms, I'm a bad luck charm. Yeah. <laughs> but are you talking about this specifically? Yes. This will be my fourth attempt at at, uh, watching a launch and hopefully my first real one
2: I can hear the wind on the microphone actually, it is picking up a bit so we might be waiting a little bit longer but it's okay because we're
0: all on internal power
2: (laughs) I am now, I've had a coffee And in fact, the wind and a rogue boat did indeed scrub the launch for 24 hours. But there were compensations. I saw the vehicle assembly building and also visited the booster fabrication facility. And it was there I met Brian Duffy, vice president of ATK Aerospace Group, the company that builds and services NASA's solid rocket boosters. Brian is also an astronaut, having flown four shuttle missions, two as commander and he was surrounded by multicoloured booster parts.
1: The plan is for all of this hardware that you see here, and by the way, all of it has flown in the space before on the space shuttle program and been recovered and and refurbished. It's all going to be used again in support of the Space Launch System program, which is the next heavy lift launch capability that NASA is developing.
2: And the one behind you that's slightly conical shaped, they're all either green or a mustard yellow. This green one looks a bit
1: battered, more than most. You know, that piece of hardware there is actually one that I've that I flew into space with, <laughs> and so that on my last flight, that was one it's called an aft skirt, and it's the part of the motor that attaches to the launch platform. So it's where the rocket is held in place until launch, and so that was one of the aft skirts that I flew uh, back in the year 2000.
2: So, as someone who's flown in the space shuttle, and now you're seeing the, the next generation of spacecraft, the the, the SL. S space launch system. Yeah. Do you see this as a progression, or as almost the sort of it, it, it does hark back to the Apollo era when you know that it, you know the ast- the ast- eventually the astronauts are going to come down um, with parachutes and splash down.
1: Yeah, we we continue to build um, from one program to the next, and we've learned some things. Apollo, of course, went to the moon. That was it. that was their goal and came back. But we used a lot of the lessons learned from Apollo in the space shuttle program where we assembled the International Space Station and it's where we learn to live and work in space, which is going to be important if we're going longer distances in the future. So if we want to go to Mars someday, which we do, then we have a lot to learn and we're in the process of learning that and it's a stepwise process to do that.
2: So what for you is the most interesting aspect of Orion?
1: Having the ability to... For the U.S. to fly U.S. astronauts to space and into deep space. We haven't been beyond low Earth orbit since 1972. It's a long time. And we would like, you know, well, Orion is the vehicle that will be able to carry people beyond low Earth orbit. So, so
2: hopefully this is the beginning of a new generation for, for NASA.
1: We'd like to think that the launch tomorrow is the first step to Mars.
3: To Mars. Would you like to go to Mars? I
5: <laughs> I
0: would love to know why. It's the red clue, eh? <laughs> uh, you get it? Because Elmo's red and... OK. <laughs>
2: you would fit
0: right in. Elmo yeah, would love to. Elmo wants to be an astronaut when he grows
2: up. That was Sesame okay. Street's Elmo talking to astronaut Ricky Arnold about the Orion launch at the Kennedy Space Centre. Yes, I was there. And after another early night, it was time to drive to the NASA bus again. Well, I've arrived. I'm back in the car park, a couple of miles away from uh, the Cape Canaveral entrance. Let's get outside into the car park. And there are already, even though it's 4.30 in the morning, the car park is half full. Full moon up ahead. How apt above Cape Canaveral? Lock the car. And uh, I'm going to join all the other NASA social members who are outside the bus and we're ready to do it all again and fingers crossed this time there'll actually be a launch. Okay, I've arrived at the site. We're a slightly, just a tad closer this time. You can see the launch pad lit up. It's an amazing sight, actually, particularly because it's across the water. You see the waves lapping towards you, and as long as there's not an alligator coming up, I'll be happy. And I'm with one of the fellow NASA social team members. Introduce yourself and what you do, because you've got a Quite a cool job
0: my name is Bobby Russell and I run a nonprofit called quest for stars and we go around to high schools and middle schools across the United States and bring high- altitude projects uh, science projects to those schools I'm also a pilot I'm an aerobatic pilot uh, with about a thousand hours uh, in flight as well as I'm a suborbital spaceflight candidate and trainee
2: tell us about that because you've bought a ticket
0: correct. I've uh, had the good fortune of winning a uh, space industry award for my nonprofit work, which gave me a two-for-one coupon on a company called x who has their Lynx uh, suborbital rocket plane. So I've gone through the uh, centrifuge and high-altitude training already, and I'm awaiting the build-out of the aircraft or the spacecraft so we can actually fly on it.
2: And how confident do you feel considering the recent accident at Mojave?
0: Well, it's funny you should bring that up because I was actually on the flight line in Mojave on October 31st, 2014, this, this last October, when uh, the breakup of the, air, uh, the spacecraft occurred. And it was, uh, the only way I could put it, it was like watching Challenger live and uh, I was standing next to the scale composite and uh, Virgin Galactic folks who, uh, for quality assurance. So it was a bad day, but you realize through what we're, I'm reaching for and what these team members are reaching for, it's a dangerous proposition, but it didn't faze me. I'm still ready to go, and I know they will get it right.
1: Go. A-C. A-C is go. R-C. Clear to proceed. director. This is the launch director. We have permission to launch. Woo! And 10, yeah. 9, 8, 7,
6: 6,
1: 5, 4, 3, 2, 1, and lift off at dawn, the dawn of Orion and a new era of American space. Oh wow, it's
2: going up so slowly. Oh my goodness sort of hovering in the sky Oh, listen to that noise
3: Just let that run on a little bit as uh, Sue reporting from uh, Cape Canaveral oh the excitement I was on the edge of my seat again Sue's there brilliant
4: you really felt like you were there with her
3: yeah I really wish I was there with her.
4: <laughs> did you draw straws to decide who went
3: <laughs> no she put the effort in to get on the NASA, NASA social and they did they had amazing access and these remarkable people all these space fans and these space people from uh, across the country and just got so close to that launch as well. I think
4: it's a great thing that NASA are doing because when I was there for Atlantis for the final shuttle launch we were there as journalists and then literally the other side of the press site all the national Social team they got to see all the access we do, the journalists, and they're tweeting it, and they're just reaching a new audience, which is If,
3: if I was going to be sceptical about it or cynical about it, what it gives NASA is on Twitter, for example... Um, oh, Free I think coverage. Most of us were, <laughs> were following this. The space fans dominate Twitter. So you get yeah. an overwhelmingly positive message on social media about the launch. I mean, there's no reason not to have a no. positive message, but actually that completely tranches all the traditional media. On there, I mean, Stuart, do you mm-hmm. find that you've you live tweeted, you live blogged uh, the Rosetta uh, landing, for example, on the comet.
5: Yes, and I did the same. Uh, I did the same for the Orion launch day um, as well, and it's it is extraordinary because there's so much. I mean, the tweet stream is is just whizzing round, you know, like uh, like a fruit machine. You, you can't keep up uh, with it, and. So the the important thing, I think, as a a journalist uh, to keep in the back of your mind is that, is this a vocal minority? And to try and get to the bottom of what this programme is truly about and whether it can truly achieve these stated aims.
3: Well, that's what I wanted to come on to, because you heard heard, uh, Rod Navius, the the commentator on that launch there, talk about uh, a new era of American space. Uh, Is it really...
5: It is in the sense that um, they have to build, NASA has to build a new capsule to get their astronauts into space uh, because at the moment they're, they're gambling on the private companies to build rockets to take astronauts to the International Space Station. So they're developing this much larger um, capsule with a much bigger deep space capacity. So it is a new era. Whether that's a good and a bold new era or whether it's going to prove to be more faltering steps depends on political will and inevitably money
3: it, it, there is this issue, isn't there, Sarah, of, of the political will in America? NASA wants to do this stuff. And in fact, the line completely from the Orion launch was stepping stone to Mars, stepping stone to Mars. They couldn't, I mean, you know, even Elmo talking about Mars, I mean, they couldn't say Mars often enough. But, but uh, that's not funded, is it?
4: I just think it's the problem is Mars is such a long term goal. And when we had Apollo happening in the 1960s, it was still a short term goal. Yes, you had different governments during that period, but the whole country was behind it. You had Small town America, places like Bell Aerospace, building these rockets, all working towards one goal. And I think the thing is, with Mars, is it's still long term. It's not going to happen within the next decade. I mean, you're looking at at least the 2030s and you've got to have the money behind it. You've got to have the political willingness and you've got to get the people behind it. Um, I hope it happens. It will happen. I think things will eventually happen. But whether it happens within our lifetime is still to be seen.
3: Do you worry, Stuart, that, the, that actually there isn't the momentum here to take this on because in looking at the the timeline for this this i mean this is fantastic I, I you know i don't want to give the wrong impression but the first crewed mission i think is looking about 2020 or 21 the rocket because the the rocket we saw there is not uh, crew rated you couldn't put people on that that's not going to be tested till 2018 so actually maintaining the momentum is going to be tricky
5: I think it's going to be extremely tricky and it comes down to money. So NASA say they need X amount of, of, of dollars to build this system. And they're told that they can have this much every year, it's about three billion a year. And for that they they can build um this rocket, this new rocket, the space launch system. They can build the full crew capsule and test it. And then that's it. That's where that that that's actually where they've got to finding a mission that this can then go on to do that doesn't need another huge amount of money because you need more hardware to go to Mars. If you're going to go to the lunar surface, for example, again, you need more hardware. So are there um, missions that can be done with astronauts in sort of lunar orbit and things like that? It it could be a very, very long time before we go to Mars. So we need a vision, Sarah.
4: I think we do. I think the problem is... um, We haven't got that that same momentum. I mean, Going to the moon has always been about politics. You look at China, they want to send a human to the moon within the decade, and it's about politics. It's about saying, look, we can do a big thing well, come and join our country, and we haven't got that vision at the moment. We've more got an idea, and I think it was really interesting with the Orion mission, actually. Um, They had Elmo involved, and they had a a Tyrannosaurus Rex fossil on the actual craft, which went into space, and yes, it's all a bit gimmicky, but it captures young people's imagination. I think... That's one of the things NASA needs to do is invest in the next generation, get them interested, get them behind it. Um, maybe with an asteroid. I mean, we don't know much about how many asteroids are out there that could potentially hit Earth. So maybe it's more likely we'll go to an asteroid and have people behind that instead of going back to the moon.
3: Well, we'll talk more about uh, relative American and uh, European funding as we go on. This is a Space Boffins podcast in partnership with The Naked Scientists. You can reach us on Twitter, Facebook and on our blog at spaceboffins.com. You can also read my space column on BBC Future. Meanwhile, in Luxembourg...
5: We succeeded uh, in uh, raising altogether some 5.7 billion euros in order to uh, to assure the different uh, ESA pro- programmes uh, for the years to come. So the good uh, news is that the uh, the future of the ESA programmes... Uh, uh, is, is guaranteed.
3: A happy host of the European Space Agency ministerial meeting, Deputy Prime Minister of Luxembourg, Etienne Snyder, celebrating after science ministers from ESA member states agreed space priorities for the next few years. And, well, he's right to celebrate. Ministers pledged to build a new rocket, Ariane 6, back to Europe's Mars missions and are supporting the International Space Station until at least 2017. What's perhaps more exciting from the perspective here in the UK is that Britain contributed £47 million pounds to the 2018 ExoMars mission, and that means the rover will be built in the UK, and £49 million to the space station programme. Well, I suggested to the head of the UK space agency, David Parker, that even a few years ago, the idea of Britain backing human spaceflight would have been laughable.
6: We've come a long way in our thinking about all of our UK space policy, joining up the the picture that goes from, you know, basic science through the commercial stuff into applications. And the involvement in the space station is a case in point because we built a relationship with the research councils in the UK to exploit our the, the, the participation in the programme for good science. But we're also going to deliver some uh, really great technology onto the project, so communications terminal for the space station that will vastly improve the data downlink from the, the station.
3: And what will the contribution to the space station mean for the UK, both for the research community but maybe for the future astronaut programmes, for example?
6: Well, it particularly means uh, for the research community that you can lead proposals for experiments for the space station. Uh, that's part of the benefit of being fully part of the program. It means that uh, Tim Peake's mission is going to happen when we're still a full member of the space station program, and uh, it allows us to think about the options for the future. One of the other things that happened at the ministerial was a so-called resolution about the, the space station and exploration, which is not about the money, but about the sense of direction and it has clearly says that uh, there are three elements of our European exploration strategy the ISS uh, the moon and Mars and so it gives us the option to think about what
3: comes next. Does this suggest there might be an astronaut beyond Tim Peake with UK backing?
6: I think it's far too early to say I mean that's I think unlikely to happen in the next uh, period though I, I don't believe there's another selection process for astronauts Um, But of course it doesn't stop Tim Peake maybe having a second flight sometime in the future.
3: And what about the future of the International Space Station? I was slightly confused watching the press conference whether it had been funded to 2017 or funded to 2020. There seemed to be uh, talk about it's going to continue to 2020 with European backing but that wasn't entirely clear.
6: Uh, Strictly correct, what has been approved is the funding uh, for the next three years. So most member states have put their money uh, down for the next three years. The resolution calls for a continuation to 2020. In the particular case of the UK, we've made our contribution up to 2020.
3: It's all quite exciting, isn't it? I mean, are we at a point where you can say, well, the UK is a key player in this and Europe is really going places in space, particularly after Rosetta, where I think it caught a lot of people by surprise. It was like a European mission. Yeah, I think you're dead right. I mean, the
6: Rosetta was a wonderful moment. Look, I worked on that project 20 years ago. I helped starting the early design of it. The propulsion system on board, of it is... It's something I worked on way back then. So we all knew this was going to be a fantastic achievement. But I think also ESA did a brilliant job in explaining it to the general public. Look, with the tweets, you know, Rosetta and Philae talking to each other, and the uh, little movies they made, the animations, and then that spectacular kind of sci-fi film ambition they did. They've they've moved up the the presentation of space missions to the, the 21st century, Um, And I think that's
3: took people by surprise, maybe, but why not? We're really good at this stuff. And what about the UK in space? Certainly the next 12 months are looking pretty exciting.
6: uh, The next 12 months are definitely going to be exciting. Obviously, uh, we're a year away from uh, the launch of Tim Peake on a six-month mission to the International Space Station. That will galvanise attention again on space activities. I hope on the research that he will do, and I hope on the technology But I can think of many other exciting things. Look, the uh, huge European Copernicus Earth Observation Programme, this whole fleet of satellites to monitor uh, the environment and provide security in the event of disasters. We're going to see their data from those satellites starting to come down right into the UK Space Gateway in Harwell. Literally, there's a brand-new antenna at the end of the the road there. We've got the European Space Agency Centre in Harwell will open in June 2015. And so all the, our investments in commercial satcoms are going to go through that centre. Uh, we've got exciting projects, new, small, innovative telecom satellite project that's coming along. So yes, it's going to be a, another busy and exciting year.
3: But the space station is definitely up there and definitely something that the UK is now, is now embracing, even though when I spoke to one of your predecessors about 10 years ago, described it as a, an orbiting white elephant.
6: Uh, it's the biggest scientific laboratory project that the world has ever put together. Now that it's there, getting maximum value out of it makes economic sense, it makes scientific sense. It has to prove its value. Let's see the quality of the work that's done. So we're always um, cautiously sceptical, but we're open
3: to the benefits. A cautiously sceptical director general of the UK Space Agency, David Parker. Now, I mean, Stuart, uh, sceptics, ca- even cautiously cautious sceptics, might suggest that you know, this thing has been built, other people have built it, other people have paid for it, other people have launched it, other people have got the thing working, and now Britain gets in at the last minute and gets the benefit. So is that, is that fair?
5: Um, <laughs> if anything, it sounds like a pretty sensible thing well, to that do, do <laughs> <Richard>. <laughs> Um I think that, that the will to be to have been in there from the very beginning has always been here in this country and it's been coming up against the brick wall of politics finally that's been broken down because we've proved that the space sector can make a real difference to the UK economy and to people's lives and with as, as David said we're joining up that chain of events from the pure blue skies thinking and scientific research and seeing how that works all the way down into people's lives. Sarah do you feel that UK is
3: very much part of a wider space exploration now rather than just a bit player?
4: I think the UK's always had a huge space program we've just never shouted about it but all of a sudden and especially with what happened with Rosetta we're kind of We, of course, have the Ptolemy experiment, but we're really kind of waking up to the fact it's not just NASA and it's not just America who do these space projects. It's people across the world, and actually the UK has a great space industry. It's going to be worth 20 billion a year by the year 2020, if I'm correct. And... I think people just need to understand that it's not just about manned missions, uh, it is about all the other things that we've been doing. So the small satellites, which we are, of course, leaders in with Surrey Space satellites, and there's lots of great things going on with the UK. Uh,
3: I mean, Stuart, you you did a huge amount of coverage, uh, global coverage, on the the Rosetta landing, on the Philae landing Mm. on the Comet. Uh, did you sense in newsrooms suddenly editors waking up and thinking oh hang on, there's a, there's a European Space Agency?
5: Well without question, it just it, it took off and it started way back in January at Wake Up Rosetta Day and I covered that again and I can remember, I couldn't sleep that night, I was just so excited because I was just thinking about what had actually happened, this mission built in Europe, masterminded in Europe had woken up Um, and done all these things completely automatically on its own found its position in space, found Earth and sent a signal back saying look, I'm here, I'm ready to work and then we had the Philae landing which was even better.
3: As Sarah says, it it does show that it doesn't have to be human exploration necessarily that, that grabs people's imagination, gets people's attention.
5: No, absolutely not. see Right from the very beginnings of the scientific revolution with the first telescopes, the first microscopes, we've been used to technology extending our senses and this is just exactly the same. The difference is that now we can access it directly and instantaneously on the internet. We can look at the comet through robotic eyes as if we are there.
3: What about the future of the international space station? It seems that there's pretty much an agreement from everyone now, Russia, America, uh, Europe to fund it until 2020, but not beyond that. And really, I mean, that's only 5 years away. What would you what do you think is likely to happen?
5: I think we need to link this up with the first story that we were talking about because the first astronauts that the earliest the first astronauts could be sent on an Orion mission is about 20 21. And if you were to take all of the money that was being put into the International Space Station and then plough that into the extension of the Orion mission, then that's perhaps how you get back to the moon so, and on to Mars. So you
3: abandon the space station and go for Orion instead rather than use the space station as a staging post or part of the Orion programme.
5: Yes, absolutely, definitely. And I think if you were sensible about it, you'd sell off the space station. You'd sell it to private industry for um, scientific expo- exploitation. And Sarah, what do you think?
4: I think that's a really good idea, actually, selling it off. <laughs> I just um, I just think it's a shame, though, if beyond 2020, people aren't using the International Space Station because it's always feels like the case, certainly with manned exploration, that we go and we do something, so we go to the moon, then we stop. Then we try something else and we stop. And we never really fully carry on and surely use the space station as a stepping stone to get back to the moon, to get to an asteroid and... And keep it going, don't just stop in the year 2020. It'll be interesting to see what happens and obviously money is going to play a big part in that.
3: Well let's stick with the space station and, and think of the worst deprivations astronauts face during six months in orbit. The cramped conditions, no showers, free dried rations now it is of course the lack of proper coffee. Well yeah. in April that is due to change. Space Boffins regular Kate Arklis-Gray who blogs as Space Kate was at the recent International Astronautical Congress in Toronto. And there she spoke to David Arvino from Argitec, inventors of the
7: espresso machine. There was something missing on the station. And what was really missing, uh, right after also uh, getting the information from different Italian astronauts, what they were very much missing was a real Italian espresso. So we started working on uh, this machine some time ago, I can say a couple of years ago, on this project. And finally, we found um, another partner, an important partner, that's Lavazza, because, you know, they are coffee makers, so they, they know very well their, their business. At the same time, together with the Italian Space Agency, we found the opportunity to have this technology demonstration or payload flying on the station in April 2015 was a really big project, let me say, because putting on orbit a machine that has to brew coffee in a safety environment to bring a, a really good coffee you require two parameters. So the temperature for, for coming out, the, the coffee is uh, 75 degrees and um, the bars, so the pressure. And the pressure is uh, roughly six, uh, between five and, and eight bars. These are two major hazards f- for the station. So that, that's why, you know, uh, this was, uh, let me say, a simple project to bring coffee on the station, but it was very, very hard to make it working.
4: And, and what's so special about espresso? I mean, you, you, can, uh, you can brew a normal cup of coffee on the space station. Why, why would it be uh, technically difficult to make a espresso instead of a normal instant coffee?
7: Let me say that on the station uh, there is no espresso, so you can only make an instant coffee, get in some water, pretty much all the water, and putting it inside a, a pouch, so inside a bag. This is something that they have on the station, but of course, in making uh, a different coffee, a different Italian flavor espresso coffee on the station would have been a totally different. Answer, a totally different, you know, uh, different thing for the astronauts. And I can tell you already, they very much appreciate it. I hope they will appreciate it also in the future whenever the machine will be on the station, because I got a lot, a lot of different astronauts asking, "Hey, when is going to fly the machine?"
4: So you, um, in the exhibition hall here, you actually have uh, a model. Is that a was that a fully fully working model? It's
0: quite big.
7: Yeah, that's quite big. It's a 1-1 scale, so it's the same uh, dimension. Uh, it's quite big. That's a good question. It's quite big because, of course, you know, as I told you before, uh, if you have a pressure, fluids in pressure and temperature, this is a big hazard for the station. So we had to, all the systems that should have been redundant, So twice, just an example: pressure sensors, uh, pressure switches, etcetera, thermal sensors, switches that you have to put at least two. Because in case one fails, you need to have another one working properly just to avoid having any hazard for safety reasons on the station. So that's why. And the other stuff, you know, having a, a home espresso coffee machine here on Earth is totally different. Because whenever there is any spill of water, this spill of water, thanks to the gravity, will come down in a small box and everything will be collected there. This is almost impossible for the station because otherwise, you know, the fluid will f- will flow around and uh, can also damage the system of the station. So, so that's why we hard worked on to, on on a system for avoiding that, uh, preventing you know the spill of water. David Arvino from Argetech speaking to Kate
3: Arkless Gray on the challenges of making decent coffee in space. Stuart was shaking his head sadly <laughs> during that. Well, what bothers you about that Stuart? Is, no, I, I,
5: no, I, I think I, to be honest I think it was one of the bravest pieces of journalism I've ever heard because she actually asked an Italian whether there was What's any so difference What's special about espresso? Espresso. I, went, yes, I know. I, know. So, I love it, I love it's this story. Yeah. It's a good advert. The, the interesting thing is um, I happened to be in Italy last week and they haven't heard this story at all. Really? Not not at all. Uh, so, and my other favourite fact about this um, space espresso machine is that it weighs twenty kilograms. And that is almost precisely the same amount of weight as the payload on Philae. All the science instruments <laughs> weighed the same. Anything to coffee. Yeah. this? So
3: yeah. land on land on a comet or make an espresso machine is what you're what you're saying. I okay. think we know which way that might go. Yeah,
4: surely when you're in space, you can't taste anything anyhow. Your taste buds. Ah, oh, but
3: I, maybe that's another reason because you need you do need proper flavours, yeah, don't
4: you? Yeah, so the strength of it. Uh, so
3: be. maybe the strength of it is, is proper coffee. But yeah, I mean, you know, Italian astronauts and instant coffee. I can quite see where they're coming from there. Um, There's been a little bit of confusion about when this machine is is being flown to the ISS. Um, It's actually going to be flown or due to be flown in April 2015. And the aim is to have it working for astronaut Samantha Cristoforetti's birthday, which is on the 26th of April. Isn't that nice? As you get a a birthday espresso. Um, Okay, uh, luxuries in space question. Uh, If you had to take one luxury to the International Space Station, let's say it can weigh around 20 kilos, uh, what would you take, Stuart?
5: Oh, my guitar. Yeah, easy. Uh, the rest of the astronauts would hate me for it. But yeah.
3: <laughs> I think there Our is guitar. actually a guitar up there at the moment. Yeah, yeah. Is, it, is it an electric guitar? No, it's oh, wow. almost certainly yeah. not an electric oh, guitar. Yeah,
5: no. It has to be electric.
3: Yeah, okay. Sarah?
4: Mine, I guess it'd be music again. Get some 80s tunes going on there, driving tunes. It's funny you should say that.
3: Because I was thinking, it would be really cool. Would be a zero gravity record player, ah, a vinyl. Yes. So you could take the vinyl. So I could take my '80s vinyl that would be collection. You'd have to and do some sort of bungee cord and spring, it for spring arrangement. Yeah, to get a record to spin to work. the whole thing yeah yes. I mean ideally you'd really want one of those proper rotating space stations then you could play your records properly like 2001 yeah exactly so yes. you know but I think yeah vinyl records in space any particular music you'd take
4: just uh, I think everything from Prince to um, Journey anything which any power ballads I think power yeah, ballads
3: good. oh Stuart's with oh, you man. there I think <laughs> like, yeah. we, we could
5: do karaoke now. Oh,
4: yeah, please and a camera of course to take even more pictures
3: Okay. well before we go and what's fast becoming a regular dedication slot um, I just want to mention Bill who listens to Space Boffins during his LA commute everyone who soon met at the NASA Social and Michael has this question Hi from Denver I recently discovered the fun and informative podcast. That's us. I have a question about space planes. Both companies in the short term will offer straight up and down rides and not point to point travel. If one day point to point services are offered, is there any advantage of taking off from nearer the equator and travelling from west to east to use Earth's spin to reduce travel
5: time? Stuart. Stuart. Oh, that comes straight to me, doesn't it? You first. (laughs) Well, certainly there's an advantage for rockets um, taking off closer to the equator because of the centrifugal force that they get. So in that sense, um, then you would imagine that there's an advantage as well for space planes, but they're completely different because their lift is generated aerodynamically and so that's a very sort of long-winded way of saying I don't know. Sarah any thoughts?
3: I would
4: think surely going that way you would save on time because the Earth's spinning but if you're in the equator you're technically travelling a further distance if you're further north on the Earth it would surely be a less distance to travel
3: I think we need to throw this out to the listeners yeah. as well because actually I was thinking yeah because I can see where he's coming from because he's thinking space plane goes up, Earth moves underneath, space plane comes down so the Earth has effectively moved yeah. and helped the Distance, but I'm not sure that actually works like that.
4: But you're going so fast as well, I don't think it's going to make.
3: And for not very long. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Uh, if you've got any thoughts, uh, then do uh, drop us a line on our uh, Facebook page. Thank you very much to guests Stuart Clark and Sarah Credis for Thank uh, you. joining us. You're very welcome. Uh, uh, the Space Boffins podcast is a boffin media production supported by the Atrium Space Insurance Consortium and ABSL Space Products. And uh, I think we can all look forward to what's shaping up to be a very exciting 2015 in space. Thanks for listening.